0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning Harvest. We're going to press on today in our series on the Lord's Prayer, and this morning we're going to look at the words, who are in heaven. I, I want to ask you a question, and it's probably a question that every child has asked their parents at some point. Where is God? I want you to pause for a second. Just close your eyes, if you will. And I want you to answer that question visually for yourself. Where is God right now? I want you to picture it. Conjure up a visual image of what God's looking at right now. Where is He? What's around Him? Now, maybe it's hard for you to do something like this. Not all of us are visual people. But when we pray... I want you to know that we all, just as visual embodied creatures, we picture something when we pray. Almost nobody prays with a blank or just completely black background in their heads. We pray to someone, and in order to relate, we're visualizing who this person is and where he is. I, for years, when I prayed, had this visual picture of sitting in a vast throne room, kneeling before a throne. And I see the giant big toe of God's foot right in front of me and I'm kneeling and I just feel that sense of how small I am and how great He is. Now, I know that's ridiculous because it's not actually what God probably looks like, but it helped me frame the relationship. And because we are embodied physical creatures confined to time and space, it's almost impossible for us to conceive of God in terms that are not physical or spatial. And so we need to picture things like the Apostle John's vision of the throne room of heaven given to him as a picture that pointed to a reality. It may or may not have been a visual representation of what was going on, but the picture helps us understand how we're meant to relate to and comprehend God in that situation. So last week we learned how uh, we are to pray to our Father. And we talked about the Father heart of God And how that is such a term of intimacy and warmth, how God has a Father's heart for us so that when we pray, we don't pray to the big man upstairs or to some um, unapproachable being, but He is the one who has invited us to call Him our Father. So that's the, the nearness of God. But today, we want to look at the next line, which creates a contrast that's really important for us to hold in tension. And that is that our Father happens to be our Father who is in heaven. Now, what does that mean to you? How are we supposed to conceive of this phrase that right now, God is in heaven? We're going to unpack that together. And, And as we do that, I want to just remind you, the Bible is an ancient book. We have to keep that in mind all the time. It wasn't written for this century in the modern technological era. In fact, the oldest book of the Bible is most likely the book of Job, and depending on which scholars you believe, it's anywhere from 2,700 to 5,000 years old. That's an old, old book. It's been around for a very long time. Can you imagine writing something and people are still reading it 5,000 years from the time you died, that's incredible to me that God's preserved it. The most recent book of the Bible is most likely the book of Revelation. And that was written around 1925 years ago, depending on which uh, scholar that you reference. So it's an ancient book. Even the most recent edition is nearly 2,000 years old. So when the Bible speaks of heaven or the heavens, It refers to it at several different levels, and we have to remember that it was the way the ancients thought about these things. When the Bible uses the word heaven, it uses it in several senses, and the first most immediate sense is the sky or the firmament. It's that expanse above us, which in the daytime looks like this, just beautiful clouds and beautiful blue right above us. It's this expanse that is always visible, always right above us, but tantalizingly, frustratingly inaccessible. The sky is is what we see everywhere we go. It affects us all the time with weather and other things, the level of sunlight. Some people have seasonal affective disorders, so that if the sky is dim, they feel it in their spirit, right? And so the sky is always present, and yet for the ancient man, at least... He could see it, but he could never quite get there. It was always just out of reach. It's hard to believe, I was just thinking about this the other day, human beings have only been flying for 118 years. That's just insane if you think about it. Only 118 years ago, mankind took the first flight. And already we have people permanently stationed in space stations in orbit around the Earth. It's amazing how short of a time in our history as a people, that we've been flying and been able to breach the barrier of the sky. When the ancients looked at the sky, there was this feeling of awe and wonder and this idea that if God lived anywhere, it would probably be up there. Psalm 19.1 really captures this well. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. You can't really look up at the sky and not have the sense that there's something beyond there. Now, we know there is, but imagine what the ancients must have felt. If God lives anywhere, He's up there. And there was such a longing to go there where He was, to ascend to Him, to meet the Maker face to face. In fact, that's the impulse that led to the construction of the Tower of Babel before flight was ever invented, before it was even achievable, they saw the birds fly up there. They knew we can't do that, so they thought, what can we do? We can build. So they began to build the tower and thought, if we can't fly, we will climb our way up above those clouds. We will get there one way or the other. And then when the sun went down, it was like the curtain was peeled away, and all of a sudden you saw the night sky. And even today as modern people, you can't look at the night sky and not be gripped by a sense of awe and wonder. Ironically, because we have so much light pollution, modern man can see further into space with our technology, but we see the night sky so much less clearly and so less often than the ancients did. If you've ever taken a trip out into the countryside where there's no city lights or light pollution, it's remarkable how clear the night sky is. It's a reminder that we're actually on a rock hurtling through space. When you look at the night sky, it's like standing on the surface of a planet and gazing into outer space. And can you imagine for the ancients, when they looked into the heavens, into the sky above, into space itself, what a sense of awe and wonder gripped their minds. How they could imagine things, but it was almost inconceivable to them. Psalm 8, verses 3 to 4, really capture this feeling well. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind, that you are mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them? Do you feel the the feelings conveyed in those two verses An ancient man staring into the night sky, seeing the vast expanse of the heavens, and thinking, the God who made that, the the God who dwells out there, why on earth would He pay attention to us? And even if He pays attention to all of us together, why on earth would He know me or hear me when I speak to Him? On October fourth, 1957, the Russians beat the Americans into space, and they launched the first man-made object, a satellite called Sputnik, into orbit. And newscasters, of course this came as a great shock to the American space program, but newscasters all around the world celebrated it and they said in unison, we have conquered space, the journey has begun. In response to that exaggerated claim, uh, seminary professor Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, who was then teaching at the Yale Divinity School, started his morning lecture with this little story, and I love this. He wanted to put it in perspective. Once upon a time, there was in the middle of the Pacific Ocean a large ship battered by the waves and loaded with tons of potatoes. One good day, a worm within one of the potatoes was able to chew through the potato skin and with great enthusiasm returned to the center of the potato saying, We have conquered Space. Just picture it. One ship in the middle of the vast ocean, and on that ship, one bucket among many buckets loaded with potatoes. And in that bucket, one potato. And in that potato, one worm at the center. And he breaks the peel of the potato, and for him, he has conquered the greatest barrier he has ever encountered. Today, in the year 2021, we live in a time where the New Horizons probe has already been sent out and returned photographs of the far edges of our solar system. The Hubble telescope has given us a glimpse into the deep space beyond us. In fact, they estimate that it's seen around 10 to 15 billion light years away. That's a great distance. Some of the images that the Hubble telescope have returned, you know, I, I grew up loving sci-fi, and I'll tell you, seeing those images just awaken my crazy imagination, what this universe must be filled with. And yet, in spite of these amazing images and the fact that we human beings on this little planet can gaze 15 billion light-years out into the distance, scientists estimate that the observable universe, that's just the part we can see through inference, is around 93 billion light-years in diameter. So even our reach with the Hubble is only showing us around 15% of what's visible, observable. And they conjecture that the whole universe in total is around 25 times bigger than that. I'm sorry, 250 times bigger. That means that we're talking about 23 trillion light years. on The best estimates of the size of our entire universe. So yes, we've broken into space. We've learned to fly. We've gazed with our technology into our immediate neighborhood, and yet, truly, we still have only broken the skin of the potato. That's the truth. It's humbling to think about just the vast expanse of the universe. In his prayer of dedication for the new grand temple that he'd built, King Solomon said this in his prayer, 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Solomon is acknowledging that even beyond the heavens he can imagine and see, the highest heavens, the ultimate boundaries of what is real in his universe. And he says even then, God has to expand beyond that. God cannot be bound by our universe, our reality. If He could be bound in it, then He couldn't have created it. He has to be more expansive than the greatest vastness we can imagine, or He would not be God. It used to blow my mind as a child, and I know I've shared this before from the pulpit, but I would stand up and would wondering if the universe is finite, if, if they told us in school it's a certain size, then what's outside of it? Where does it sit? Is there an outside to the outside, and if God lives there, what is his reality like? And I realized I was coming to the edge of this concept called infinity, and it was almost making me insane. I realized then that my human brain cannot, it doesn't have the capacity to actually conceptualize infinity. Everything for me is finite, it's bound, it has to have a start, and it has to have an end. I cannot handle the idea of an endless expanse where there is no such thing as outside. That makes my mind want to do all kinds of bad things. This points us to the final meaning of heaven used in Scripture. It's that great mystery we've just hinted at. That there is this sense in which God is real and present in a way we can't comprehend because we are physical, embodied creatures, bound to space and time, traveling along time on a line. Everything we know we can see and touch, it has boundaries and finiteness, and yet God is declared in Scripture as transcending all of that. Jeremiah 23 23 to 24. Uh, It's God speaking to the, the prophet Jeremiah, and I think it captures it really well. God says, Am I a God who is only close at hand, says the Lord? No, I am far away at the same time. Can anyone hide from me in a secret place? Am I not everywhere in all the heavens and earth? It's true that sometimes God chooses to make His presence especially felt in a place or in a point in time, even in a person. But just because God chooses to make His presence known to us in that localized way does not mean that the presence of God does not and cannot transcend even the greatest confinement of space and time. God's presence, His reality, is bigger than our human minds are able to comprehend. There has to be room for the mystery of this in our faith. In the Bible when the words heaven and earth appear together, that conjunction is more than just saying there's this heaven and there's the earth. It's not talking about two places. When heaven and earth are used together in conjunction, it's a it's a shorthand way of saying this is everything. The heavens and the earth encompass everything that is real and known to us. There is nothing that is not included in the heavens and the earth. So by that definition, Earth represents everything we can conceptualize, see, or grasp. It's not just a planet Earth, but in that sense, when you say heaven and Earth, Earth represents everything that is in our knowable, reachable, finite, tangible universe. And the heavens represent everything beyond that. It's that part of, of what is real that we cannot grasp, but that is nonetheless still very real. It is what theologians will refer to as the mystery. Theologian Karl Barth really said it well. He said, heaven is the creation inconceivable to man, and earth is the creation conceivable to him. Do you get what he's saying? That earth is everything we can actually conceive of, and heaven in scripture is everything we cannot. We're we're left with images and visions and representations because the reality of heaven as the God-self, God-space, His presence, His infinite presence, is beyond our capacity to truly handle. I was thinking this week that when an expert and a novice try to have a conversation, the expert has to simplify things or else there's really nothing to talk about. And as a result, the expert has to constantly reduce what he's trying to say into terms or, or, or uh, images that are accessible to the novice. Just think in terms of trying to explain the internet to your grandparents. What could possibly make sense of the way the internet works? As you're trying to say, what is a web browser? How does it work? You'd have to reduce it. And this is where analogies and illustrations are enormously helpful. When you know a great deal and you're trying to explain it to someone who can't really grasp it and you have to start at the beginning, we use images, illustrations, examples to try to make this complex reality attainable for this other person. I'm not suggesting they're dumb or deficient. I'm saying that there's so much to explain. Where do you even begin? And at some point you recognize the world that shaped this person, there's a capacity limit. If they really apply themselves, maybe they could learn it. But probably they're never going to get to the place of understanding that you as the expert have. So this simplification is a kind and loving act because the expert wants the novice to have some level of understanding. But simplification is by nature a very leaky process, because when you begin to simplify and simplify, it helps the novice gain some understanding to a point, but there's still this large gap of knowledge they don't have. Uh, I want you to think about... uh, if you are explaining your job, because a lot of you, have, you do work every day that is so far beyond my realm of expertise. I could not do what you do for a living. If I were to ask you, let's say one of you is a surgeon and I say, what is it you're doing today? Oh, I'm doing this procedure. Break it down for me. Well, this person has a little tube and the tube has a little leak in it. I'm just going to close up the leak. I could hear that explanation, which is a grotesquely simplified version of a surgery and I can say, huh, I get it. I could probably do that. Do you realize how foolish a statement that would be? He's explained it to me in a way that I can kind of understand, but that doesn't mean I really get it. It means I get a concept, a symbol of it. But behind that simplicity is a depth and a complexity that I could not possibly hope to relate to on that basis. And so the novice must have the humility to admit I understand to a point, and yet I recognize there is still a large gap, which is a mystery to me, that I cannot know. See, we human beings desperately want to know God. And in our quest to know God, we have simplified Him over and over and over because we want to get a God who is graspable, attainable. I can't think in terms of infinity, so I need to think of a king seated on a throne in a real room filled with a hundred million angels singing. I need that kind of visual representation to grasp the concept of an infinite God. And so we keep simplifying Him, and with each simplification, God becomes more imminent, more near, more attainable and understandable. That's a good thing. That's what we really want, is for human beings to have a sense that we do know God. We do understand Him. But the danger of simplification is that we can come to believe, maybe even in our pride, that the simplified God we can handle is all there is to God at all. Just like the arrogance of me talking to a surgeon and hearing the way she does something and I say to her, oh yeah, I could do that too, I get it. That pride is actually harmful to us. It doesn't elevate us, it diminishes them. And we need to have the humility to be able to say, God, thank you for revealing yourself. There is so much I've come to know about you, but at some point I cannot stand at a pulpit and you cannot sit sit in your room and claim to God, 'We've, we've deciphered it all, we've broken the code. Everything there is to know about this God, I can explain. I've been doing this for a quarter of a century, and I'm finding the longer I do this, the more there's still this amazing sense of mystery. I don't want to preach in a way that presumes I've got all the answers because I don't. I have enough to place faith in God, and He has has earned that faith over the course of my life. And yet, it's still faith. It's not proof It's not a certain scientific empirical knowledge. I still have to, at the end of the day, make a choice to believe in the God that I can conceive of, knowing that there's so much to God, I can't hope to understand. And although there's a side of that that bothers me, it's a comfort as well. Because if I could actually get God all the way, wouldn't I just be Him? (laughs) How could God be graspable in His totality by someone like me? And so when we pray to our Father who is in heaven, that's such an important phrase. And every time you pray the Lord's Prayer and you come to that line, our Father who are in heaven. Let, let this be an invitation to you to remember that though He is your Father, He is, imminent. He is just unbelievably transcendent. It is an invitation to remember the total otherness of God as well. The bigness, the greatness, the almightiness, the unknowability of an infinite God. So that even though we call Him Abba Father, we also hold in tension the fact that He is infinite and mysterious. Let me close by just exploring why this matters to us. I mean, one reason... It matters to us. There's so many. One, one of them is just to, to create a certain humble posture in the way we relate to God and to invite us to keep going in the journey, never to stop as if we haven't figured out, but that there's always more to discover about God. But I want to zoom out a little and look at the world we live in and ask, in this world, trying to navigate it as a Christ follower, why does the greatness of God, His transcendence in heaven, matter to us? Well, one reason is that the world is a bigger mess than you and I could possibly fix. There are days when I start thinking about the problems that I'm reading about. And I know many of you feel this. It's just overwhelming. I, I, draw, I drive through the city and I see someone roll down their window and just throw a bag of trash out the window. I think, that person might even live in this neighborhood. Why would you do that to the place you live? And I think about economics And I think about broken families and I think about education and crime and hopelessness and politics and economic policy and government. And as I think more and more about that simple act of throwing a piece of trash out your window, it reveals layer upon layer of brokenness and dysfunction that feels so overwhelming. I think I could get you to stop. I can impose a fine, get you to stop littering. But that's only scratching the surface. It's a broken that is so broken, the longer you think about it, the more you dig, the more you feel like quitting. Anyone who thinks we can solve the world's problems has deluded themselves and has missed the picture. The more clearly you see our world, the more in despair you ought to be that we are not enough to fix it. At least in large part because we are also the contributors to the brokenness. The good in us is not good enough to push back the bad all around us. And that's also partly because that bad is in us as well. See, there's great power in speaking up and taking action. But that power in us is not an infinite power. We should speak up, we should take action, but we should never do it under the illusion that we alone can make things better. It's just beyond our capacity to do. I want to close by um, reading for you something that Will Williman, who is a former pastor and dean of the, the chapel at the Duke Divinity School, he wrote this, and I think it summarizes the situation really clearly. The God whom we have been taught by Jesus to address as our Father is the one who rules the whole cosmos, who speaks in earthquake, wind, and fire. Any less of a god wouldn't do us much good. The good that needs doing in this world, good for the poorest of the poor, the sickest of the sick, the most desperate of the desperate, tends to be considerably larger than our mere social activism, charity, or politics. Things are cosmically out of hand. Evil is not just the nasty little things we do to one another. It's as if evil is organized, massive, subtle, deep, cosmic. I think that about says it. And if you're paying attention, and if you care at all about the world around you that you see, it will drive you to prayer. Life in this broken world compels us to pray Yes, it compels us to act. But if you don't pray, your eyes are not really open. It matters that we pray because what we see is simply beyond us. But it also matters to whom we pray. If you're praying to buddy Jesus, if you're praying just to a God who's a slob like one of us, then your prayer life won't give you a rising hope greater strength and commitment. When we pray, we pray to our Father, Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, who is so different, so greater than us. And because we pray to this God who is greater than us, our prayers make a difference because we're praying not just to the one who loves us, but we're praying to the one who has infinite power and resources to move heaven, and earth. He can do what we cannot. And so we must do all that we can. But we must admit that unless we turn to God, there is still a huge gap that we cannot do for ourselves. Whenever you pray the Lord's Prayer, whenever you pray even on your own for your life and the lives around you, never forget that the God you pray to is the God in heaven who is greater than anything you can conceive of. And let that comfort you to know that we're not just praying to a God we figured out, but a God of infinite mystery and infinite power who can do whatever He intends to do. I want to invite you to just take a moment, wherever you are, If you're with others, just take a moment to yourself and just process that and sit before God in quiet. What do these words you've heard this morning say to you in your spirit? What is God trying to do in your heart right now? And just invite Him to, just let Him do that for you. And if there's something you feel you need to say back, take this moment to do that. When we return, I'll lead us in the Lord's Prayer, and then we'll close with the Blessing. One of the things we've committed to do for the remainder of the series is that after each message, we're going to recite the Lord's Prayer together. And as we do, I hope that your experience will be each of these phrases in this familiar prayer will become deeper and more meaningful to you as we unpack them together. And so let's recite the Lord's Prayer together. And I I really invite you where you are, as a family or even by yourself, to recite it out loud. Let the words really wash over you as you pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May the God who invites you to call Him Abba Father always be for you at the same time the infinite God of mystery, the transcendent, totally other God who cannot be bound and contained by this reality we live in, but is greater than anything you can conceive. And may He give you the comfort that every time you pray to Him, you pray to the most powerful, infinite being there is. He knows your name, He loves you, and He hears what you are saying. May this give you great comfort and great commitment to keep praying and never stop. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be blessed now and forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. God bless you. Have a wonderful, Christ-filled week. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.